Welcome to the Restore the Union podcast. If you're tired of the unreliable, biased news sources telling you what to think and how to think, then you've come to the right place. This is not your typical political show. You may actually have to think and come to your own conclusions. The Restore the Union podcast is about breaking down barriers across the aisle, working together to understand how we got to this explosively divisive political place, and understanding without bias the issues we face so that we may restore our more perfect union. This is the Restore the Union podcast, and this is Eric Marmer. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Restore the Union. This is Eric Marmer, your host. Welcome you back, returning listeners, and if you're new to the show, I welcome you to check out our first episode if you haven't already done so, and I'm really excited for today because in the last episode, we laid the groundwork for how we got to such a divisive place, and now we're finally going to be able to jump in here to our first major issue we're going to talk about, and uh, it may not be on your radar, and if it is, great, but if not, it will be now, and it's just so important because at the heart of the issues we face and it is a fundamental component to democracy. So we're going to discuss how the current electoral system is broken and enables us to be more divided, how it allows outside actors to influence our elections more easily, and then we're going to get into what options are even out there to fix the system and break some of them down and see what anyone is even doing to change the status quo. So it is with great pleasure today to introduce you to Yuri Konikov. He's the co-founder of the Florida Initiative for Electoral Reform. They're also known as FLYER, and they are a nonpartisan coalition of groups and individuals recognizing the need for electoral reforms to enrich and expand democracy in our state and its localities. And although they are a Florida-based group, we'll be talking about electoral reform today as a whole and not just covering Florida. So Thank you, Yuri, for coming in today and talking about electoral issues with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so, Yuri, can you just tell us a little about your background as it relates to the topic today? For me, as an individual and, and a voter, I would like to have greater voice and more choice, and I think that's good for all voters, and I would like all voters to have that as well. Uh, and I feel that the structural reforms that would lead to that would create the basis for a more uh, cooperative political culture that uh, seeks to to negotiate, to be inclusive of different policy solutions to complex public problems, as opposed to uh, a zero-sum winner-take-all dynamic that we have now. So Yuri, uh, you know, this show is concerned with, you know, how we got to this divisive place. So how do you see the current electoral system playing that role and enabling uh, a more divisive society that we see today? At the root of it, we use winner-take-all voting to elect our decision-making institutions, right? Our legislative bodies, our executive branch offices. And what is winner-take-all voting? It's also called first-past-the-post. It sounds logical. Uh, It sounds very simple. Whoever has the most votes wins. But when you have more than two candidates, that lends itself to vote-splitting and wasted votes. How? Let's say you have three candidates. One candidate wins 40%. The other two candidates split the other 60%, 30% each. Now you have a candidate that won with 40%, while 60% of the public voted against that candidate. That creates the basis for uh, the divisiveness you you mentioned, because that creates a dynamic where voters must make a zero-sum calculation, as must politicians, in order to drive out a base 
and not have to reach out to other potentially less reliable voters. Right. Uh, and, and I would characterize this just, just to add to your point. The data speaks for itself. These dynamics have led to a 90% incumbent re-election rate over the last 60 years in Congress. 85% of the seats are safe for the party that holds them. And if we look at the last election, around 10% of U.S. House seats were won without major party opposition at all. Uh, and So people are out there just, I'm not even going to run because it's not even correct. worth it. Right. And in state legislatures, it's worse. Uh, it's an average of 40% that are won unopposed by, ma- by a major party. Wow. So it sounds like some of the stuff that you're saying right now, it sounds like it's the way that outside actors are able to actually influence our elections. I mean, we all, even if you pay the smallest amount of attention to the news today, we're all hearing that we're under threat of our elections being influenced by outside actors like Russia and China and anyone else trying to sway our elections. And can you touch a little deeper on on how they're actually able to do this? I know you just mentioned it, but in a way that uh, really describes it so people understand how it actually works. So if we're using winner-take-all voting, or first-past-the-post, as it's also called, that leads to a situation where now you can exploit vote-splitting. So break that down for us, like uh, just using a general example of, of how that happens. So if, let's say we use the example of three candidates, but really, to, let's be honest, often you have more than three candidates right. on the ballot officially. Right. It's just that only two have any statistical chance to win in this current system. And what happens is, uh, an outside party, a foreign country, can target voters to encourage them to vote for the candidates who don't have a statistical chance to win, to split enough votes to ensure that a more preferred candidate out of the two that have a statistical chance to win, wins. Right. And the fact is, they would simply be following in the footsteps of what both parties do now. In states, they will pay for a third party to get on the ballot to split votes off from their other major party opponent in order to win. This happens routinely. The point there being that that is empowered by the way in which we vote. There are voting methods that are far better than this winner-take-all voting we use that would empower voters to vote for who they feel is best without cannibalizing the votes of other candidates and potentially giving them the worst option uh, by voting for their favorite option. So that's just one issue that we face in the current electoral system and, and how this two-party system is, is broken. Uh, so what other what are some other major areas of concern that you, that you see that we should be concerned about when thinking about how to fix our electoral system? What are some issues with it other than uh, the way others are able to influence our elections more easily? I mentioned previously that Flyer, our group, does focus on campaign finance reform as well. Uh, ballot access reform and voting access reform. And the reason I mentioned campaign finance is because if we just look at the statistics, it speaks for itself as to how that also empowers the divisiveness of the system and the non-responsiveness of the system to the public. Uh, For example, if we look at the 2018 election, less than one half of 1% of the population provided 71% of all the federal level campaign funds. Wow. In 2016, it was slightly more than one half of 1%. Presidential election, obviously, more donors. Slightly more than one half of 1% provided almost 70% of all the campaign funds. These are considered highly competitive elections you know, relative to the conditions of our current system. And yet, as you can see, the vast majority of the public 
uh, has no say in what's called uh, the election of donors. And the fact is, let's be honest, right? This leads to a kind of access to representation, both qualitatively and quantitatively, that most of the public cannot leverage. So we understand how the money plays a role in getting these people elected, but can we deep break it down even further into what the failures are with that system in terms of doing the things that they said they were going to do for the people that elected them and how that money actually influences their decision making when it comes to laws and making things happen for people. It's probably important to note that obviously it's an indirect form of influence, right? Because nobody will directly admit that they're influence based. But what happens is, case in point, right? The the level of the need to raise money, right? Because the bar of entry is so high in terms of campaign finance that uh, the fact is, as many perhaps know, uh, elected officials, when they come to Congress, they're given an introductory PowerPoint presentation where they're told to essentially spend six hours a day on fundraising in some capacity. So in the eight-hour workday that we hope our elected officials are working, instead of legislating for those eight hours, they're spending three-fourths of their day just working to keep that campaign finance bank going. And uh, wow, that really sheds light on why it seems like they're not only these people can't work together, but they can't work at all for us. Right. Well, it's four hours spent on fundraising and dialing, and then two hours spent on what they call strategic constituents. You know, take that for what it is. The point is fundraising permeates everything. And that's why you hear people say, you know, this is no longer a democracy, and it's because of how the whole system is working. It's working for people with money who are donating those funds to these candidates who then work for those people and not us, the people. The dynamics of winner-take-all voting also incentivize that how. Well, A, if you have a 90% incumbent re-election rate, it's a very safe investment if you're one of that one half of 1% that has the power resources to invest big money in campaigns. But B, and just as importantly, note that 68% of the public in studies does, does not feel that the two-party system adequately represents them. And that makes sense. Why? Because of the fact that the two-party system, due to winner-take-all voting and arbitrary ballot access laws and tinkering with voting access, it's relevant to that, but because the two-party system funnels all political expression through itself, what happens is all these different factions funnel into both parties to use them as election vehicles. What unites them is negative partisanship, and what negative partisanship is simply that the other side is worse and we need to prevent them from getting into power. Once one of those parties gets into power, those factions make demands. It's very difficult to keep that artificial coalition together. And as a result, voters get frustrated. There's voter fatigue, and it tips to the other side. And in the end, voter satisfaction is low. And that, again, at the root of that is that winner-take-all voting because it leads to voting that is not as effective as what would exist with other voting methods that are tried and true. So let's talk about some of those other voting methods. Uh, so what what's out there? What can we use in this democratic system uh, to have a better method of electing people? 
So one method that right now is on the rise and is tested and works well and leads to more effective votes, leads to uh, greater voice and more choice is ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting eliminates this problem with vote splitting that I mentioned before. It eliminates wasted votes because it allows voters to rank their candidates in order of preference. So you don't have to make a zero-sum decision as a voter uh, of the kind uh, of decision where you might say, you know what, I like this candidate, but I don't think they have enough resources or name recognition to win, so I'm going to vote for this lesser favorite candidate. Right. And and this conversation of electability does not need to come up in a, in a voter's mind. So, so what does ranked choice voting look like? How does that system work in the most simplest sense? So in the most simple sense, let's say you're electing a single seat office, like a governor, president, a mayor, okay, uh, or a single member district representative. Okay. If you have more than two candidates, somebody needs to get a majority of the vote to win. That's 50% plus one. So you as a voter go into that booth and you vote for your candidates in order of preference, one to three. And once you vote, now remember you have the freedom to rank as many or as few candidates as you like. But let's say you vote for all three, one, two, and three in order of preference. All the ballots are tabulated when the polls are closed. Mm -hmm. We tabulate all the first choice preferences. Does somebody have 50% plus one? If yes, they win. Election's over. If nobody has 50% plus one, you eliminate the last place candidate and you take their second choice preferences and distribute them to the two candidates left in the running. Eventually, somebody gets to 50% plus one and they win. And that kind of sounds like it eliminates uh, having to worry about if the person you actually want to win their race can even win their race and deflecting your vote to somebody you're not crazy about but rather see than somebody okay. else. And it kind of sounds like that also will help uh, with what we talked about earlier with how people will influence our elections and cause us to be more divided. It sounds like they'll be able to safeguard against that with the system because they're not going to be able to say, hey, we're going to back this other candidate who has no chance at winning but will split the votes with the person we don't want. Is that right? Is that how that system will work? Correct. What incentive do you have to, like I gave the the domestic example, where parties will pay for a third party to get on the ballot to siphon off votes from their major party opponent? What incentive do they have to do that under this system when the voter can rank the candidates in order of preference? More importantly, right, for uh, somebody, let's say an outside party, foreign party, to intervene, what would be the, I mean, they could do it, but how effective would that be if the voters can rank their candidates in order of preference? More importantly, this raises the civility level. Why? Because now a candidate does not benefit from simply engaging in negative campaigning and driving out a strong base. Now a candidate is incentivized to go reach out to the voters of the other, uh, uh, the voters that might support the other candidates and ask to be their second or third choice preference. And in the 14 U.S. cities where this is used, this happens routinely. Maine just recently adopted it for statewide elections. And in the gubernatorial primary, you saw gubernatorial primary candidates co-endorsing each other and, and asking each other's voters to be the second-choice preference. Wow. Uh, and, and this leads to more issues-driven campaigns and a more civil campaigning environment. And states are already doing this, right? So who is actually doing this right now, just off the top of your head, and, and how is it working for them? So as I mentioned... Maine is the first to take it statewide. They've had one round of elections successfully with this. Uh, Maine, Portland, Maine has used this for several election cycles for its local elections. 13 other U.S. cities are using it. Australia has used this for its House of Representatives for 100 years. 
Wow, so this isn't even a new concept. This is something that's been in place for some time now outside the U.S. and here too. I'm excited to see where it goes. So getting back to campaign finance issues, what is anyone doing right now? Is there any system in place to address the campaign finance problem? Yes, right now there are two, I would say, more popular reform models that are actually in action throughout the United States. One is the fair elections model, which is predicated on a small donor matching, and the democracy voucher model, which is active, actively implemented in Seattle and uh, has had great results in terms of getting more people to participate in the process and being engaged by candidates more directly. And what is that system like? So fair election, uh, I'll explain both. Fair elections works like this. Candidates who qualify for the program agree to raise an X amount of dollars, mm-hmm. depending on the legislation, okay. from small donors, small in small increments from individual donors. Once they reach a certain point, they're matched dollar for dollar from a fund up to a certain point to be competitive. And before you came on, I read a little about this and I saw... what. Can you explain what democracy vouchers are? I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, concept. The democracy voucher model of campaign finance reform provides vouchers to each registered voter. In the case of Seattle, it's four vouchers of $25 each. And participating candidates that agree to uh, spending caps and campaign finance restrictions can raise those vouchers from voters and recoup them for that value. And what that has done is, the data has shown, that has led to a significant spike in the participation of people from lower income levels in the political process and actually being reached out to by candidates in order, certainly not just not just to get their vote, but to get those vouchers. And it has created a more inclusive political environment. Well, it in, sounds like there's still like a lot more outreach to the to citizenry that you wouldn't have uh, seen previously, I guess, huh? Yes, and in both cases, both the fair elections model and the democracy vouchers model have been shown to be effective as compared to the current campaign finance rules, which, again, differ from state to state, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But certainly in the case of Florida, both models are far more effective than what we have. So in getting to some of these other issues, uh, I have a great uh, listener question today from Howard Rudnick. And his question is, how do we have electoral reform when we have politicians in office who seek to gerrymander entire districts to diminish and restrict the votes of those whose voices often go underrepresented? First, I'd like to point out that the most opportunity for reform, for electoral reform, starts at the local level and then progresses upward because the fact is at the federal level, there is the least political space for that. But the local level has the most. And this, is, this has been true historically in the United States. Uh, so, for example, uh, right now, 14 U.S. cities use ranked choice voting. Some of them have been using it for well more than a decade. Maine has just become the first state to adopt it for statewide elections. But before it adopted it for statewide elections, it had a major city, Portland, that used it. So, again, if we want electoral reform to occur, we must get it adopted in our localities and then have it be tested there, shown to work well, and then be able to uh, project that to a higher level of, of government. However, I will also add that that doesn't mean legislation at the federal level is not being sponsored as we speak. There is the For the People Act, which within it contains the Fair Elections Model of Campaign Finance Reform, among other good government reforms that are ultimately nonpartisan in nature and would facilitate a better 
more functional representative democracy. There's also the Fair Representation Act, which actually goes even farther than the ranked choice voting models I've mentioned. It provides for a proportional representation form of ranked choice voting that would outright eliminate gerrymandering. The reason it would eliminate gerrymandering is because it would create three and five seat districts instead of single seat districts. And at that point, they become too large to gerrymander. However, representation becomes even better because of the fact that you still get the benefits of ranked choice voting and parties would win seats in proportion to the votes they earn. So, for example, we talked about ranked choice voting for a single seat before, which is 50% plus one. That's the threshold for right. a single seat. However, when you have a five-seat district, that threshold is now divided by five, so it becomes around 17%. So what happens is candidates who receive a certain share of the votes, they'll be elected. And uh, if a candidate who reaches that threshold is elected, any excess votes over that threshold are then counted for the voter's second choices. Then after excess votes are counted, the candidate with the fewest votes is eliminated. The voters who selected the defeated candidate as a first choice will then have their votes counted for their second choice. And this process Kind continues. of like the whole the other system, Correct. right. And this process continues until all seats are filled. So at that point, A, you can't gerrymander because it's statistically very difficult, but B, why would you gerrymander? If you give a seat up to another district, you still have to pull another seat to keep that district contiguous and, and have the, the population be proportionate. It, right. it also does not behoove any party to mess with voting access because now voters have a much more effective vote and now you need every vote to get your proportional amount of seats. So what what can somebody like Howard do himself if he wanted to act as someone in his community to make something like this happen for him, his community and the country as a whole? How does, how does someone on, on a local level do that? So as I mentioned, yes, there's federal legislation, and that's important. But the fact is, the federal level is the most difficult level at which to pass reforms in, at sure. the current, in the current environment. However, the local level has the most room and opportunity. And so what that means is you can take legislation like that, like the Fair Representation Act, uh, or even single winner ranked choice voting, which 14 cities have successfully passed and used, uh, and have that be a reference to your state legislature or to your city council. For example, I explained a, uh, the multi-winner proportional ra- representation right. form of ranked choice voting. Cambridge, Massachusetts has used that since 1941. And that harkens back to a history in this country where between 1915 and the late 1940s, 24 big and small U.S. cities adopted it and successfully used it and provided representation to communities that were locked out of city council. So this is out there happening right now, and we just don't know enough about it, I guess. So I'm glad that we highlighted this for our listeners, and hopefully people listening out there, if this strikes a chord with you and you think this is an important issue, I implore you to get involved. So... Is there anything else out there that that you'd like people to know about that we don't currently know about? Maybe something you see as as uh, there's your chance to get out there so people are aware of it. Because a lot of this stuff I wasn't even aware of, and this is enlightening to me. So I was wondering, is there anything else out there that we should be aware of? Sure, there are, there are other good reforms to consider. That includes automatic voter registration and same day voter registration. Right now, 16 states have automatic voter registration. That means once you turn 18 or you go to a DMV. You're automatically registered to vote. You can opt out, but you're automatically registered. Right. Uh, and the 16 states that have automatic voter registration include uh, California, Georgia, and West Virginia. So clearly it's a, it's not a partisan issue. 
as you can tell from that, it, automatic voter registration has quadrupled registration in Oregon and increased at 62% in Vermont. Has that, has that highlighted uh, any uh, improvements in terms of voter turnout? Yes, uh, it, has le- it has led to greater turnout, certainly in the first election uh, since it was put in place in, in some of those states. Interestingly enough, better voting methods like pr- the proportional representation that I mentioned before right. are shown to increase voter turnout beyond the benefits of automatic voter registration. And I guess that's probably because people feel more inclined to vote when they know that their vote actually matters. Right. Or it could be said, when votes are more effective, you're more inclined to vote. And it's, it's also true that the more you're engaged, because, because again, uh, candidates seeking election, parties seeking uh, seats are engaging more people, and there's more options, there's more choices, more people are inclined to go vote. And also just, just to note that same-day voter registration, which is a separate reform, is also active in 17 states, including Idaho, Wyoming, and Iowa. So these are also reforms that should be pushed in, in our own state here in Florida. We don't have these. There's also the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It's a reform that is designed to allow the winner of the popular vote to become president without amending the Constitution to eliminate the Electoral College. And the way it does that is states that enact the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact legislation commit to awarding their electoral votes to the winner of the National Popular Vote. It would take effect when enough states to equal 270 electoral votes pass that legislation. Currently, 15 states and Washington, D.C. have adopted this legislation, totaling 196 electoral votes. So, Yuri, it sounds like we're already so close to this happening. You're saying we already have 196 electoral votes, People, states that have signed on and, and D.C. that signed on for this, and we only need to get to 270 and this is enacted? Yes. Ultimately, all of the reforms we've discussed today are within reach if people, regardless of their partisan disposition, devote their civic energy to building a more functional representative democracy for all. And Yuri, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's what this show is all about. It's about breaking down these issues, coming together to solve them. And I'm hoping our listeners, after having listened to this episode, have a clear picture of what's going on with our current system and they can think about the ways to improve it and hopefully even take action on that. So Yuri, I just want to, again, thank you on behalf of myself and the listeners. So thank you again for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I would just like to reinforce that the answer to divisiveness and polarization lies in more representative democracy, not less. And in accomplishing that, we will build a more perfect union. And uh, so that's all for this episode. I thank you for tuning in to Restore the Union. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do here, then share, subscribe, and leave a review over on iTunes. And please feel free to comment or message me. I'd love to hear back from listeners. And that's all for today. And thank you for continuing to listen as we continue to restore the union.